My mom and dad divorced when I was three. I grew up in Michigan. My mom and dad divorced when I was three. I have a little brother. My mom remarried shortly after, a year after. My stepfather was incredibly controlling. He made my mom feel like a lesser person, uh, the way he talked to her. Abusive in every sense of the word. Didn't have a job, so he's always home. Not a fun person to live with at all. When I was in eighth grade, we moved to Texas. He convinced my mom that it was a good idea that he adopt us. We didn't put up a fight because I think we were too scared. If we don't do it, my stepdad's gonna be meaner to my mom. He's gonna be meaner to us. I felt like I was doing a deal with the devil. My dad never complained about or never tried to talk us out of letting my stepdad adopt us. He wanted us to do what we wanted to do. Looking back, I, I really think that he took it as we gave up on him, that he couldn't do his part, and we wanted a better life without him. Truly, we were trying to keep the peace in the house that we lived in because my stepdad was not a good person. What we did not know at the time is that uh, my dad was suffering um, from uh, a severe depression. We really did not go back to visit him because my stepdad was incredibly controlling. He didn't make it easy, made it very difficult to communicate with them. And he died a year later. Walked away from it under the impression or being told that he died of a broken heart. The guilt that comes with that was incredibly heavy because we felt like, you know, I played a big part in breaking his heart because I let my stepdad adopt us. If you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll open to Ephesians chapter 4. We've been for the last six weeks walking through a, a series of messages on recovery, and we're using this acronym, the word recovery, uh, for each of these weeks, and we'll be in step six tonight, today, and just that video, I don't know about you, but as I think about the hurts and the habits and the hang-ups in my own life, a lot of those are directly tied in to relationships, what I mean by that is we don't just have our, our hurts and, and habits and hang-ups all on our own. We, none of us exist as, as a man on an island. Everything that we are today is, is largely in part due to our relationships. The, the way that we were raised, the way that our parents treated us or what they did or didn't do for us, the, the kids that we knew and grew up with and hang out with and how they treated us or, or ignored us. And we, we have all these things that have gone on in our lives. And, 
And today we're going to talk about the connection between those hurts and habits and hang-ups that we've been walking, talking about the last six weeks and the relationships in our lives. And I'm going to go ahead and, and give you the takeaway this morning, and it's basically that until we're willing to work on the relationship problems that we have, we'll never really be able to deal with the hurts and the habits and the hang-ups in any real and lasting way. Now, there's some good news in that and some bad news in that, as you'll see walking through today. But today we are going to talk about uh, repairing relationships. Uh, I'd say every one of us in this room has or is experiencing some form of a broken relationship. Someone's ticked you off, someone's hurt you, someone has deeply wounded you, or you've done that to someone else. And so we're going to talk about that today. Let's review a little bit of uh, where we've been on a road to recovery. And if you would, uh, help me out this morning and, and read these steps, the first five steps, along with me today. Step one is this, to realize I'm not God. I admit I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing, and my life is unmanageable. Then we came to step two, to earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to Him, and that He has the power to help me recover. And step three, consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. And then between step three and step four, we started taking what we call the uphill climb. This is where it starts to really get difficult as we start to put into practice some of these things. And so step four was to openly examine and confess my faults to myself, to God, and to someone I trust. And then last week, Mike led us through step five, to voluntarily submit to every change God wants to make in my life and humbly ask him to remove my character defects. And so with all that, now we come to step six, which is another difficult step, but so very important for us. Today we're going to talk about what it means to evaluate all of our relationships. And in so doing, to offer forgiveness to those who've hurt us and to make amends to those we've harmed, unless by doing so we would cause harm uh, to them or others in that process. And we'll, we'll kind of lay that out today and walk through. This is a very practical message, and I'm going to be real honest with you this morning. This is not one of those messages that's really going to end with a place of, hey, you know, come to the altar and pray. What's really going to end is this. I'm going to go ahead and give you the take home today. Take it home and do something with it. That's really where we're going to let out today. In fact, as far as a formal invitation response time like we normally have, we're not really headed there today. Where we're headed is take what we're talking about and go and do something with it. Because if we don't do that, it's all just talk and it's going to be worthless. Taking this step in particular means you've got to go and you've got to do the work. But thankfully, you're not alone. And I hope you'll see that as we walk through this today. So Ephesians chapter 4 we're going to look at verses 31 and 32, if you'd stand with me in honor of God's Word today, if you're able, as we read these verses. The Apostle Paul writes these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Let all bitterness and wrath 
and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And you can be seated. Father, I pray for us as we walk through these verses today and as, as we walk through this sixth step on the road to recovery. Lord, just really honestly, this is not an easy step for us. Forgiveness and, and making amends, these things do not come easy for us. Would you remind us today, Lord, that these didn't come easy for you either? God, would you help us this morning to look beyond cheap grace, to look up upon forgiveness not as something that's easy or simple, but something that is costly, but it's well worth it, both for us and for those who are being forgiven. Lead us to this time, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. First part of this step, we're just going to jump right into it this morning, is to forgive those who've hurt me. Now, I know automatically, as you see those words on the screen and they're in your outline, and the first thing that begins to happen is we begin to bring up from our bellies all those excuses that we would have for not taking a step like this. And there's all kinds of excuses. And in fact, I'm going to talk about some of those in the context of, of your outline there, the why. Why in the world would I forgive those who've hurt me? Isn't it just easier not to, just to ignore it or stick it in the back closet of my heart somewhere, uh, just to not deal with all those past hurts and relationships like uh, the lady in our video shared with us this morning? Isn't it easier just to ignore all that stuff and just move on with my life? The reality is that until we deal with these sorts of things, we never really move on. Why should we forgive? Let me give you three very short and biblical reasons here why we should forgive. First of all, as verse 32 of our scripture today tells us, because God has forgiven us. Now, now let me say something real quickly. Don't take this as a guilt trip because that's how so, so often this has been used. Well, God forgave you, so you should forgive others. And we take those shoulds and musts and you better do this as, as something that it often just leaves us in a place of either huge guilt or we just rise up against it in some obstinate way and we seek to rebel against all the things that we should and ought and ought to be doing. And I want to encourage us this morning in light of this passage when he says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. He's not trying to lead you to a place of a guilt trip. Well, God forgave you, so you better forgive others. What he's trying to help us to do this morning is to point us back to the cross. To look back to the cross and see the Son of God whose blood was poured out for us, that he was there. And when he looked out at those who were crucifying him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't realize 
who I am, Jesus was saying. They don't realize that I'm doing this for them. They don't realize that even as they spit upon me and they hurl curses at me, even as this soldier is getting ready to jab this spear into my side, they don't realize that I'm here on the cross for them. So often we use these kind of verses as a a biblical guilt trip, but they're meant to point us back to the gospel. They're meant to point us back to Christ crucified and he who was there for our forgiveness. And so it's not a guilt trip. It's an empowerment that we can forgive others because we've been forgiven. That's the news that the gospel brings to us. This is the good news of the gospel that we can forgive because we've been forgiven. Colossians 3, the the passage that goes right alongside here, Ephesians chapter 4, says, In bearing with one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, again, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And, And again, we hear that word must and we go, well, why must I? Maybe it's just me. I don't know. I'm not seeing a lot of head nods in the room here this morning. Nobody wants to admit to it. But that's what rises up in us when we go, well, Why do I have to do that? When it really ought to be in light of the cross, I get to do this. Now I can do this. What for so long I was incapable of doing because of the hardness of my heart, because I was holding on to all these things, because these hardened places, these hurts, these habits, and these hang-ups were defining me, now I can move beyond that in Christ. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. How has the Lord forgiven you? He's forgiven you totally. He's forgiven you completely. He has forgiven you for eternity The Bible says that he has taken your sins and he has cast them into the depths of the sea. He has removed them from you as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed your transgressions from you. His forgiveness is complete and total. And you say, well, but I can't forgive that way. In and of ourselves, none of us can forgive that way. And that's why it says in God that we forgive as God has forgiven us in Christ. We need the power of Christ to do this kind of a work, to be able to forgive others. So we forgive, first of all, because God has forgiven us. Secondly, we forgive because resentment simply doesn't work. And I know how this works. We we cling to resentment and, and bitterness. We cling to it thinking that we're actually somehow hurting the person that we're bitter against. And a lot of times they don't even know we're still bitter. They don't even know we're holding these things against them. And if they do, they're not nearly as eaten up about it most of the time as we are. Resentment really just doesn't work. And you look, we're going to look at a few verses from a guy named Job. You look in the Old Testament, and if there was any guy we could look to in the Bible who had what I would consider to be a good reason to be bitter. He had a great reason to be resentful, especially toward God. You think about Job, and if you don't know Job's story, Job was the guy who had it all. He was the guy that every one of us in this room would want to be. 
He had the great job. He, had, he was wealthy. He had a huge and wonderful family. He had everything except for maybe a nagging wife, which we won't talk much about her today. But he had everything going for him. And within a matter of days, he lost it all. All of his children were killed in a horrible accident in one day. He lost all of his wealth that same day. Within a week, he had lost his health. He was laying in a, in a, in a field full of, of broken, basically an ash heap is where he was laying. He was laying in a, in, a pack, in a pile of junk, and he was scraping his open sores with a piece of broken pottery. He went from the guy that everyone would want to be to the guy that nobody would want to be. Great reason to be bitter and resentful. And yet listen to Job's response. The Bible says at the end of Job's life, and in all that Job encountered, he did not sin against the Lord. Listen to Job's response to the things that happened to him. It starts there in Job chapter 5. Job is here speaking with his friends. They're having this dialogue about all that's happened to him. His friends are basically trying to convince him, Job, the reason you are where you are is because somewhere along the line you screwed up. His friends were wrong, by the way. God had a divine plan. You can read about that in the first couple of chapters of Job. But Job chapter 5, Job says, To worry yourself to death with resentment would be a foolish, senseless thing to do. Now, if the guy who had every reason to be resentful and bitter could make that statement, there must be some truth to it. He goes on in chapter 18 and he says, You're only hurting yourself with your anger. Again, Job understood this whole deal of if I'm harboring bitterness and resentments against someone else or against God, if I'm holding on to those things, I'm really only hurting myself. And then in chapter 21, Job says, and some men, they stay healthy all the day until they die. And I noticed this was the guy who had lost his health in the midst of God's trials in his life. He says, others though, they have no happiness at all. They live and die with bitter hearts. Now, how many of you in this room, by show of hands, could say, I know somebody like the second half of that verse? Somebody who just lives in bitterness and resentment, and it just exudes from every pore of their being. They've been hurt, and everybody knows it because they wear it on their sleeve daily, and they don't care to take it and show it to you. They're going to use their bitterness and their anger against everyone in their lives. They've lived in bitterness, and unless something changes in them, they will die in bitterness. Job basically says, what good is that? We forgive because God has forgiven us. We forgive because resentment simply doesn't work. And thirdly, we forgive because the reality is we will need forgiveness in the future. That's just the reality for us that some of us are in need of forgiveness right now, but if you're not in need of forgiveness right now, you will be in the future. It's just the reality in our sin-soaked world that we are going to need forgiveness. And the Bible says that, that we need to forgive as we would want to be forgiven, first by God and then by others, as we'll talk about here in just a few minutes. But this issue of forgiveness, it is so very important. 
Jesus talked about it in Mark chapter 11, and he said, and when you stand praying, and basically the idea was when you, when you come to church and you're coming in to worship, as they would go to the temple and pray, he said, when you stand praying, when you come there to worship, his command is this, forgive. And notice, he, he gives uh, no prerequisites for that forgiveness. He says, when you're coming before God to worship him, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, what does that leave out there? Nothing. He just blanket statement. It's just a blanket statement right there. If you have anything against anyone, forgive. So that what? So that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, we don't have time today to get into a long discussion about how God's forgiveness and ours are interrelated. There's, there's a lot in the scriptures. If you want to know more about that, you, you just begin, go, go home on your, on your Bible software, go to biblegateway.org, and you can, you can just Google the word forgive, and you'll begin to see a lot of these kinds of themes coming out, the relationship between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others, and how those rely upon one another. And it's, there's a lot we could talk about there this morning. We just don't have time to do that, but I, I encourage you to look into that. Forgive those who've hurt me. We've talked about the why, now let's talk about the how. Just a few practical things this morning. Maybe you're saying, you know, maybe God has gotten you to the point where you would say, okay, I, I really do want to forgive this person. I feel like I'm at the place where I want to do that, but I really don't know where I would begin. I've been carrying this for so long, or, or the hurt is so deep, or I don't even know how I'd begin the conversation. Where would I even start? Let me just give you a, a three practical pieces of advice in how to begin this process. First, it begins by revealing your hurt. And this is the thing that many of us, this is the last thing we want to do. Because what we do with our hurt is we take our hurt and we want to put it in the deepest, darkest closet of our hearts. And we want to shut the door, turn off the lights, lock the door, and throw away the key so that we never have to deal with that anymore. And that's what we do with all of our hurt. We put it back in that deep, dark closet and we don't really ever want to deal with that again. But that's not the picture of forgiveness. And that's not the picture of healing that we're after this morning. Revealing your hurt means digging out that old key and going to that old closet and opening that up and bringing out into the light what you left in the darkness all those years ago. And being willing to openly deal with that hurt. And that means being able to go to the person who hurt you as much as you're able. We'll talk about that in a moment to go to the person who hurt you and to honestly and openly say, you hurt me and this is how you hurt me. Now we're going to talk about some things that will help you in this process in just a moment, but this is where it begins. Willingness to open up your heart and to share about that hurt. The second step, though, is this. The willingness to release my offender. Now, I want to say something. That does not mean in releasing your offender, you are not saying that what they did was okay. That's where so many of us get caught up. We think that if we release them, if we choose to forgive them, that that means that what they did to us was okay. That's not at all what that means. 
When Jesus looked on those who were crucifying him and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, he was not putting his stamp of approval on the fact that they were spitting upon him, cursing him, and making fun of him. He was not doing that whatsoever. He was not saying, what you guys are doing is fine. Forgiveness does not mean what happened to you was fine and good. So we release our offender. Peter asked this question in Matthew chapter 18. He said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And in other words, how many times do I need to forgive my brother if he, if he sins against me? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, now there's some of us in this room that we would be really excited about that verse because we would go, man, at 491, I can be done with that. That was not Jesus' point, by the way. His point was not you get to time 491 of forgiveness and you can just mark that off your list and you're done with forgiveness for the rest of your life. No, he was, his point was it goes on and on and on. Why does it go on and on and on? Because that's what God's forgiveness does. And again, God's forgiveness does not mean that your sin is okay. God's forgiveness is not a license for us to sin. In fact, the Apostle Paul said, okay, grace is a good thing, right? So in Romans 6, he says, so if grace is such a good thing, should we go on sinning so that we can get more grace? If grace is good and I get grace when I sin, should I go on sinning more so I can get more grace? And what was Paul's response? By no means. I died to sin. How could I choose to live in it any longer? So we reveal our hurt. We release our offender. And thirdly, it's replacing my hurt with God's peace. Now I'm going to say in 99.9% of circumstances, this will not happen until there's a face-to-face between you and the person that hurt. You know, there are some times when that is not possible. Perhaps that person has died. Perhaps they've moved away and you've completely lost track of them. Perhaps there were things that took place that you just don't need to be in a room with them because that hurt is still there in a way that you're not going to be ready to, to find the healing. Perhaps that person is just going to inflict more harm on you in that moment. We can use lots of excuses, though. I'm saying, though, in 99.9% of circumstances, the part of this step that's so crucial is for us to go to that person and to do these three things. You've hurt me. But, but I want to release you. I want to offer you forgiveness. For that, I want to tell you that I've already forgiven you for that. And I want you to know that I'm seeking God's peace in my life. See, true forgiveness means that when that person's name passes through my mind or their picture flashes in front of my face or I come across them in Walmart, true forgiveness means that none of those feelings of bitterness and rage and anger, none of those, those ill feelings rise up in me anymore because I've been able to let that go. It doesn't mean, again, it does not mean that what they did was okay, but forgiveness means that that's been washed away in my mind by what Christ has done on my behalf. Apostle Paul said, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, 
and be thankful. How will you know if the peace of Christ is ruling in your heart? Look at the last three words of that verse and see the product. How will you know if the peace of Christ is ruling in your heart? The overflow of your heart will be thankfulness. No longer bitter speech, no longer angry speech, no longer resentful speech. The overflow of your heart, when it's filled with the peace of Christ, is thankfulness. Primarily to God, but also thankfulness to others. If you see a lack of thankfulness in your life, it's often an indication of a bitter heart. Secondly today, and we're going to kind of fly through this one a little bit, but it is a really important part. Sometimes it's not offering forgiveness, it's asking for it, making amends to those I've hurt. We're going to talk just for a moment about why we would do this. Because for some of us it seems like, well, you know, I hurt that person and I've been trying to put that behind me. I've been trying to just uh, get rid of that and be done with that. We kind of take that and put it in the deep, dark, dark closet of our heart, lock away, throw away the key, that whole deal. There's a place here, though, where for us to have real healing, we need to go to this place of making amends to those I've hurt. Why would we do this? Hebrews chapter 12 gives us the reason. It says, watch out that no bitterness takes root among you, for as it springs up, it causes deep, trouble, hurting many in their spiritual lives. Now, let me give you an illustration this morning that I think will help you to, to, to take hold of this. We're getting ready to come to mowing season if winter will ever go away. Okay, we're getting ready to come to mowing season, and, and uh, I've grown to love that more than I used to. Uh, the zero-turn radius mower makes it a little bit of fun. Um, but we have a problem in our yard, and it's probably going to be worse this year than it was last year. It's those dandelions. Okay, now, now I know that there is a good solution for dandelions, but let me tell you what my solution is. The dandelions spring up, and I get out the zero-turn mower, and I cut their heads off. Now, some of you in this room are laughing because you know how well that works. What happens when you cut their heads off? They shoot their stinking seeds all over your yard, and the next week you have ten times as many dandelions as you had the first week. And then guess what I do? I cut their heads off again. And then the next week, by the, by the time June rolls around, come by my yard, I live about four miles up on 261. You look to the left there, you'll see Donnie Sanders' beautiful yard, and then you'll see mine. And right, I'm between Danny and Donnie. They're going to have beautiful green grass, and I'm going to have dandelions. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to keep cutting their heads off, and they're going to keep sprouting up their ugly heads and blowing seeds all over my yard. Now, there's a way to get rid of dandelions, isn't there? But you have to use something that's going to get to the root of the problem. Now take that for a minute and think about the root of bitterness. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's talk about this root of bitterness that springs up into our lives, and it's like a weed. And you can go along and you can cut the head off of the root of bitterness all you want to, but what happens is when you just cut the head off, when you just deal with the surface issues of the root of bitterness, what happens is it multiplies in your life like dandelions in my yard. 
And now that bitterness is being enacted on people that weren't even part of the problem to begin with. Now that bitterness is being enacted on people. Now you're becoming a source of bitterness in other people's lives. And it's like those dandelions spreading all throughout your life. You are mad with one person and now you've caused bitterness to spring up in the lives of 10 people and 20 people and 100 people. You're that person who's walking around a bitter soul. The root of bitterness has taken root in you and you have scattered those seeds all over. So how do you deal with the root of bitterness? It's the same way that I should be dealing with those dandelions in my yard. You've got to get something that's going to take care of the root of the problem. Where is the root of the problem? It's a heart issue. It's not enough for me just to deal with the surface issues. There's a heart issue that needs to be changed. If not, Hebrews twelve fifteen takes place in our lives and we see that root springing up, causing deep trouble and hurting many others. We see this in our churches so often. Two people get at odds with one another and before long, what do you see? You see a church split wide open by a small, what began as a small little argument, not dealt with, no amends made, no forgiveness given. Now it's caused a church split wide open. So that's the why, if you didn't already catch on to that. Let's look at the how. How do we make amends to those we've hurt? How do we go about this process? First of all, I think it begins here. Get you a blank sheet of paper and sit down and make a list of those you've harmed and what you did. And I want to say, I know this is not a pleasant process any more than dealing with those stinking dandelions. I know it would be, I could deal with them if I really wanted to. I could get the little, whatever that little spreader thing is that gets, you know, somebody needs, some of you farmers need to help me out with my language here and what these things are. You can tell how much I know about this stuff. But as long as you don't really deal with it, it continues to spring up. So you begin by making a list of those you've harmed and write down what, you did or what you feel like that you did to that person. Be specific. Let me give you some things that may help you get started if you're going to take this step this week. Do you owe anyone a debt? Do you have any broken promises? Have there been relationships in which you were over-controlling, over-possessive, hypercritical? Were you abusive verbally, emotionally, physically? Did you just plain forget about that person? Were you unfaithful? Did you lie to them? And we could go on and on with this list. I'm just trying to help you uh, get an idea of, of where this begins. As you begin to think about those that you've heard, you begin to write their names down and you begin to be specific about the way that you've hurt them because where we're headed is you sitting down in front of that person and confessing that to that person and asking for their forgiveness. Secondly, think about how you'd like for others to make amends to you. And maybe you've even had this happen in your life. Maybe someone has been bold and courageous enough to come to you and to make amends over somehow they've hurt you in the past. And, and they've done that really well. Maybe that's a great model for you. Maybe you've never had anybody do that 
for you. I don't think we do this nearly enough. We don't nearly enough in our culture right now take responsibility for these sorts of things. But think how you would like someone to make amends to you. You wouldn't want them to make a bunch of excuses. You wouldn't want them to try to to explain their way out of it. I think basically you would want them to own what they did and ask you to forgive them and just leave it at that. It's pretty simple. It's not easy. Jesus said, the golden rule, as we call it, as you wish others would do to you, so do to them. It's a really great life principle. If we would live according to this one verse, think how different our lives would be. Here's a couple of questions to ask as you're considering these things. First of all, if you're going to make amends with someone, first ask, is this the right time? Now, now, some will use this as an out because you'll say, well, it'll never be the right time for that. It's just too hard. That's not what I'm saying here. Uh, Let me tell you what's not the right time. If you have some big issue with someone and you really need to make amends with them, probably the best time to do that is not going to be during the UK game this afternoon. Unless they're a Louisville fan, then they don't really care about the UK game this afternoon. But probably the best time to make amends is not going to be during their kid's birthday party. Now, there's some laughter in the room, but there's some folks that don't really understand that there's there's a right time for these things. And if, if you've deeply hurt someone, if you've hurt someone, truly making amends means there's a right time for that. And it means maybe setting up an appointment with them and sitting down with them where you can have time to deal with the issue, not just a a flyby. You don't just come by and, and expect to get it over and done with in 10 seconds, but give time for this. Ecclesiastes says it's, there's a right time and a right way to do everything. Secondly, ask, do I have the right attitude in this? Am I doing this because I really want to reconcile the situation? Am I really looking for healing? That's what you're really asking. Or am I going into this with a dagger in my back pocket? Do I really want healing here? Or am I just going into this in the back of my mind, probably just going to do more damage? Now, again, this is not an out to not pursue the making of amends. What I'm saying to you is check your attitude, check your heart attitude before you step in to this place. And number three, ask this, is it appropriate? Now, again, don't use this as an out, but, but there, are, there are certain instances where it's not necessarily appropriate for do you approach this, especially in certain ways? For instance, let me, let me give you a, a, an open uh, case study. If there has been someone that you were unfaithful toward, perhaps a former spouse, and you cheated with a particular individual, it's probably not a great idea for you to go and be alone with that individual in order to make amends toward the fact that you cheated on your spouse with that person. That's probably not an appropriate situation. Ask these questions and think through very carefully when to do this. Romans chapter 12 says, 
If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Look at that last phrase there. I want to work our way back through that verse. We're going to end kind of here this morning. Are we, okay, good. All right. Live peaceably with all. Does that say live peaceably with some? Does that say live peaceably with those you like? Live peaceably with those who like the same sports teams as you, who vote for the same party as you. No, it says all, doesn't it? But there are two prerequisites there, and I want you to see them. Live peaceably with all. First of all, we're going to work backwards to the verse. First of all, so far as it depends on you. And here's a great truth in all that we're talking about this morning. You can't change anybody's heart. Let me say that again for those that are struggling with this. You can't change anybody's heart. You may want so desperately to make amends with someone, your, your son, your daughter, your brother, whoever it is that you've hurt, you may want so desperately to make amends with that person, but they're not willing or ready or able to forgive you. And, and, but I want you to understand, it says, live peaceably with all so far as it depends on you. That means do everything that you can do to re- reconcile that relationship, but you can't change anybody's heart. Only God can do that work. So you pray desperately for God to do that work. And you do everything that is in your power to do, asking for their forgiveness, sitting down with them and being honest about where you've fallen short and what you've done, how you've sinned against them, but also knowing you can only do those things that are dependent upon you. And then it also says, the second prerequisite, it says, if possible. I know in a room this size there are situations represented here that's, it's impossible for you to make amends with that person because they died. And you're carrying around guilt from a relationship with somebody who's no longer walking around on this planet. And, you're, and you think that you're going to have to carry that guilt to the grave because you'll never be able to make up what you did with what... You'll never be able to make up for what you did to that person who's no longer with us. I want to say to you, based on the authority of God's word this morning, you do not need to carry that guilt to your grave. Jesus died on the cross for that guilt as well. You say, well, what do I do? Let me give you a couple of things. I know these may sound kind of cheesy, but I think that you, you, somebody may find these helpful. First of all, There's something called the open chair technique. That you would take a couple of chairs, you sit in one, and you have the other one facing you, and you can pretend as though that person is sitting in front of you and say all that needs to be said to that open chair. And you're going, like, like I would really do that? It's just one way you might find some healing, to be able to sit down and do something. Another way is write the letter that you'll never be able to send. Sit down with that blank sheet of paper and write a letter to that person laying out the things that you've done or the way they've hurt you, whatever, whatever the situation might be, and seeking healing through that. I want to guarantee you this. It is not God's desire for you to walk around the rest of your life bearing the guilt of a broken relationship. So do whatever you can do as far as it depends on you to live at peace with all men. And if it's impossible to make amends, 
if it's impossible to seek or to ask for that forgiveness, then leave that in God's hands. Use the open chair, use the letter you'll never send, but ultimately seek to be at peace with God and with others. And finally, here's where we're going to end up today. We seek to refocus our lives. And let me be clear as we end today, because that statement could be very misinterpreted. Some of us think that, well, I need to deal with all my junk, I need to try to mend all my relationships so I can just get on with my life and go about doing the things that I really want to do. These things are holding me back, so I've got to deal with this stuff so I can move on and do what I need to do. So I can move on and do what I want to do. That's not at all what I'm saying to you this morning. What I'm saying to you this morning is the reason that we give forgiveness and the reason that we seek forgiveness, the reason that we make amends and the reason, and the reason that we, we offer those things to others is so that we can refocus our lives on Jesus Christ. Don't get this wrongly because there's, there's a very selfish place in this that will only lead you to more hurt for yourself and more hurt for others. When I said the root of the problem was a heart issue, it's a heart issue because that's what God wants to come and take control of. He does not want to set you free from these things so you can just go your own way. It was your own way that got you in the mess in the first place. In case you'd forgotten. He wants to set you free so you can walk in the way that he designed you for. That's his way. He wants to set you free so that you can walk not according to your own paths, but according to the path that Christ has laid out for you. He wants to set you free from all those broken relationships so that you can be in a right relationship with him, so your focus can be on him, and so you can live the rest of your days for him and spend eternity with him. And that's the motivation for all of this stuff we're talking about in relation to recovery. As we finish up today, I've invited George Marshall to come and to share his testimony. George, you can come and start making your way up this way. It is not an easy thing to stand in front of you guys, especially when you're opening up the deep, dark, ugly closets as George is about to this morning. And I want to pray for George, but I also want to pray for us. And here's, here's what I want to encourage you in. Like I said, we're not going to close this service out the way that we normally do with our big response time and all that. The response is this. You want to know what you do with this? Take it home and do it. I couldn't be any more clear than that. Those that have hurt you, those that you've hurt, take these principles, take what God has given you this morning and put it into practice. Put away all the excuses for not doing it and trust God to do an amazing work in your life. He's done that in the life of this man and I want to give him time to share with you about that this morning. Let's pray for him and then Father, thank you so much for George. I thank you for this brother and how faithful you have been in his life, God. And for what he's going to share with us this morning, I, I know that 
This is not an easy thing, but it is so good. Lord, give us ears to hear what you've done in the life of this man and to believe that the same God who has worked powerfully in George's life is the same God who wants to work powerfully in ours. And Lord, fix our eyes on the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who bought our forgiveness so that we could forgive others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you hear me? Hello? Hello? <laughs> Is it on? Hello? Okay. All right. Thank you, Brother Andrew. Boy, whew, that was a powerful, powerful message this morning for all of us, wasn't it? Amen. I want to share with you, I just, you know, happened to, for a living, the good Lord's given me some skills, and I do counseling work. I see individuals, I see families, I see people with depression, people with anxiety problems. I'm going to tell you something. If we don't deal with some of these issues that Andrew talked about, if we hold on to heart, uh, bitterness, anger towards people, that kind of thing. This is what drives depression in so many people that I see. They have not been able to let go of it. They don't have the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit working in their life to help them forgive, to help them let go of that bitterness. And I'm telling you, it will destroy you. And it will destroy relationships if we don't you know, get on our knees and deal with some of these issues of forgiveness in our own life. So God bless you, brother, for sharing what you did today. Uh, you know, this is a story of how God's blessed my life. You know, I, I hope you hear him, and I hope I reflect his glory this morning and nothing I did here. Uh, you know, I had this wonderful testimony all written up, all typed up, ready to go here, and gave it to Andrew about a month ago, and then here about uh, two weeks ago, my mother died. And so this, this was a huge thing to cause me to re-reflect on what I wanted to share this morning. I wanted to share you a little, a little bit about her story as well today. Um, you know, my mother got saved at about six or seven years old. Uh, they went to a church somewhere out Hudson Centerview, out in that area. And a, a friend of hers that was about six shared with her what it meant to get saved and just from a six-year-old's faithfulness, my mother asked the Lord Jesus to be her Savior and Lord. After church was over, she told me this many years later when she had Alzheimer's. And she could remember those stories like this so well, but she couldn't tell you what she had for supper tonight, you know. But I love to hear her tell about this family member that got delivered from alcohol or how her daddy got saved or how her granddad got saved as adults. It really blessed me later in life to hear that. But anyway, when she was saved at 6, she came down before the church and everybody was coming down to congratulate her and all this. And she said, there was a man that told me, read some in the Bible every day. Read some in the Bible every day. And she said, I took that word, you know, of advice to heart. And so she did. She was faithful in that. All my life I can remember her reading her Bible, studying her Sunday school lesson, praying for other folks. 
Even when she had Alzheimer's so bad, so bad, she would go in there at night. It was part of her routine. She would get into the scripture and start reading it out loud. And I could follow what passage she was reading in Luke or in John. And it just blessed me that even in those advanced stages of Alzheimer's, she knew to keep reading that word. It blessed me. It really did. Um, what I wanted to share with you next, uh, gosh, she grew older. She got married. Uh, she and my dad couldn't have children. For years and years, they couldn't have children. They had prayed, Lord, please give us a child. She had two sisters that had three children apiece. And they, you know, it just broke her heart that she couldn't have a child. Maybe there's a mother or a woman out here, excuse me, that's desperately wanted children. You know, that can be a real heartache in a person's life. You know, I want to tell you there's hope. You know, keep praying. Keep praying with someone that loves you. And God just may bless you and surprise you with that child. Uh, you know, or maybe he'll bless you with adoption. But anyway, one of my uncles, her youngest brother, that my mother pretty much raised him like her own child when she was a teenager growing up. Well, my uncle was about 19. He and his mother came together and prayed, Lord, give them a cup. Give, give my sister a child. And he tells me now, he said that was the first answer to prayer, is that she got pregnant with you shortly after that. And that was, that was the most powerful thing to happen in my mother's life. She shared that with me in her 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, how God had blessed her so much with being able to have a child. And, and my brother came along two, weeks, or two years later, and she got a double blessing, right? She might have wanted to throw us back a couple of times, I promise you. But anyhow, you know, I went to church. I had godly parents that, that set a good example to me of what it meant to be a Christian believer. Uh, they took me to church. We prayed over our meals. Uh, you know, my mom was probably the godliest woman that I ever met, and I, I say that with humility. I mean, I never heard the woman utter a cuss word I never heard her say a mean or hateful thing to anybody or about anybody my whole life. And that was a blessing to have that godly example. Mothers, I hope that you take something like that to heart and say, you know what, I want to be that godly mother for my children. I want them to be able to say I was the most godly person they ever knew, you know. Well, anyway, I got saved when I was about seven. Easter Sunday, 1969, I was baptized in my church in Louisville, you know, and best I knew how, I turned over my life to the Lord at, at seven years of age. You know, little did I know that I had been dropped into the middle of a war zone. And when we get saved, it's not like all our problems go away. That's when the devil really steps up his attacks on us. So at seven, I got parachuted into this war zone, you know, and the devil had... You know, God, and, and there's some wonderful scriptures about the plans God has for our life. In Jeremiah 29, 11, God says, For I know the plans that I have for you, plans to bless you and prosper you and give you a hope, not calamity. So God has a plan for blessing our lives. Well, let me tell you what, the devil's got a plan for tearing us apart too. Okay, some of these things that Andrew talked about this morning, God, the devil will use them to tear your, 
your, your heart and your life, and he'll tear your relationships all apart too if you, don't, if you don't know what to do or how to seek out God and get his help. Well, what I wanted to share with you is I got a little bit older, 12 years old, I had my temptation for the first time to use drugs. And you know what? It wasn't a devil with a pitchfork that came to me and said, here, try this marijuana. You know, you love this. It wasn't somebody like that. It came in the form of a cousin of mine that was a year older than me, and I looked up to him. You know, and that was my introduction at 12, which is not so unusual. They tell me even these days it's probably younger than that, you know. Anyway, I used once in a while, for a while, for two or three years, you know, off and on. By the time I got to be 15, my goodness, everybody I knew, people I was at my bus stop, everybody was doing this stuff, you know, and seemed like they were having a great time to me, you know. So, hey, I wanted in on the good times, you know. So I got to using at 15. I got to using just about every day by the time I was 15, 16 years old. And I don't mean just a little bit. I mean, even before school, we would go out and we would get so high, we would get blasted out of our ever-loving mind before even going to school in the morning. So you can imagine what kind of student I became after a while going to class like this. We were, not, we were worse off high a lot of mornings than we would be on Saturday nights. I'm ashamed, I say that to my shame, but it's the truth. So, I, you know... All through that time, my parents were watching this take place. Here's this child that they had wanted desperately that was getting involved in this stuff, and they would sit me down and talk to me and try to get me to quit, try to get me to quit running with the same friends. You know, I thought they were my friends, but, you know, I didn't want to hear it. I was like, just get out of my face. You know, you're the ones with the problem. Just leave me alone, you know. So, like I say, I was using every day, 16. I was going to school in that kind of shape every day. Had a bunch of friends doing the same thing. I had a teacher in high school back then. We called him Brother Bob. And Brother Bob was on fire for God. He didn't make any apologies about it either, you know. And he was uh, he had a ministry in Louisville. He would go to Iroquois Park. He would go to different places around town that were notorious hangouts, like for the Louisville Outlaws biker gang I mean, he, he, would, he had a ministry and outreach to all these different types of folks in Louisville. And he would come to class and share with us about this biker getting saved or this, this prostitute getting saved. And he wanted us to understand that God loved us and that he was ready to receive us and give us a life and a hope in him. And, you know, he got my attention because here was a Christian that was real and honest, and he didn't blink an eye, he didn't flinch when he talked about his love for the Lord Jesus. And so I couldn't help but notice seeing somebody that was real in their faith. At that time, I'm sorry to say, a lot of the Christian people that I saw, all I was seeing was a lot of hypocrisy. And I, I know that's probably judgmental on my part, but I saw a lot of people that I thought were they were talking a good game on Sunday morning, and then the rest of the week they were living anything else but that Christian faith. So that's what I was seeing a lot with the people I knew as believers. Well, the drug use got worse. And to say marijuana, it was probably my drug of choice. And, and kids, good guys, I watched something on television yesterday. We're talking about these states that are 
bringing on marijuana to make it legal, and they're saying, oh, it's harmless, it's harmless. Well, that's a lie. That's a lie. I mean, this the devil is out there throwing lies at our kids and our adults and families day by day in the media and the advertising. You just, if you know your word of God, you see his lies in so many things out there. So kids, smoking weed is not harmless. It's a way the devil will destroy your life if he gets a chance. He'll do it with pornography. He'll do it with, my goodness, excessive anger, bitterness, rage. He'll do it. He'll destroy your life with trying to control someone else. Let me tell you, that hits home with a lot of us is trying to be overly controlling with the other people in our life. That's just one way the devil will try to destroy us. It just happened to be he got to me with drugs and drinking. So I was drinking bad along through, you know, with using weed. I was just several nights a week. And, you know, I started off, it wasn't too bad, but the longer I got with it, I mean, God, I was out of control, totally, totally out of control. And I would go from one bad, terrible thing happening in my life to the next, and my folks were just begging me, please stop, please don't do this. You know what? I didn't care. I could care less if it hurt them. I could care less if they were crying, if they were begging, if they were threatening me. You know, just get out of my face. I don't want to hear it. And, you know, I want to say I didn't start off when I was 8, 10, 12 years old as a mean, selfish, self-centered thieving person. I wasn't cut out that way to start with, but that's how drugs take control of your mind. Little by little by little over a period of time, they make your personality into something totally different that you didn't start out being. So I had no conscience. I could tell my folks anything. I'd tell them off in a minute. You know what? They were kind to me. I'm really amazed my dad didn't kill me during that period of time. I am. I'll tell you about one thing that I lived through to tell about it. You know, this is just one time. There were many, many, but I want to share this one with you. One Sunday afternoon, this is about September 1979, their friends were over at the house watching NFL preseason football, having a big time, drinking beer, carrying on, smoking weed. That was our typical day for us, the bunch I ran with. That's all we did. That's all we knew. I got to taking Valiums that day. I don't know if any of y'all know about what Valium is as a medication, but it's a sedative drug. And I, I mean, I had done this before several times, but we got to taking Valiums. We were drinking at the same time. I got just completely out of my mind. And even my friends knew, hey, we better get his car keys away from him. So they did. They somehow got my keys away. And I kind of watched to see which friend had the keys and when they were not paying attention, I ran up and I stuck my arm down his pocket and jerked those car keys out, got out to the car before they could catch me, pushed the locks down on the car so they couldn't stop me, start the car, held down on the horn, and drove around the neighborhood for probably five, ten minutes like this, holding down on the uh, car, car horn. Can't get the words out. You know what? I have clients, I see clients every day, people struggling with depression, with anxiety, with drug problems, with bad marriages. And some of them, they'll look at me and they'll say, you probably think I'm crazy, don't you? I mean, that's, that's the question on a lot of people's mind. What they're doing, they're projecting their insecurities onto me and they're saying, I bet you think I'm crazy. I'm sitting there thinking, 
No, I don't. I know what crazy looks like. I've lived it, you know. The drugging, drinking, all that kind of of out-of-control lifestyle, that's what crazy looks like. And some of you have been there, I know. You know, some of you have lived through it with family members that you loved. But anyway, uh, that, that day I got out driving. I was on a blackout. It's hard for me to describe to somebody what a blackout is like, but your body is up moving, driving, talking to people, and your mind has gone to sleep. It's like sleepwalking, and you're just totally inebriated. So I'm driving around this subdivision, bearing down on the horn, being a complete idiot, and I, some way or another, I remember bits and pieces of that day. I got to speed up in my car to about 55, 60 miles an hour in a subdivision, in a subdivision, and went right through an intersection and into these people's yard, uprooted their bushes, gave a side job to every house on that block, and took off back to the house. And by the time I got there five minutes later, my dad comes in. He goes, Don Watts is out here. And he says, you drove over his bushes out in his yard. He said, well, did you do it? And I swear, I was, I was so out of it that I could not stand up and focus on my dad when he was talking to me. I was that gone that day. And, you know, he went outside and the car was out in the yard and he goes out there and he pulls a great big piece of bush out of the grill of my car. So they knew, you know, the neighbors were all standing around watching this and I can only imagine how that must have humiliated my dad. But you know what? I think he was just thankful that I'd lived through it. He just let it go that day. He knew there was no use talking to me about it. But I swear the sadness on his face just broke my heart. Well, this went on. This insanity went on for another couple of years after that. It was just one more bad event. It had caused my parents so much heartache. I want to tell you, they could not even smile with me in the same room with them. They could not even smile anymore. It had just destroyed their lives to watch their child go wrong you know well all about this time I got the feeling I wasn't going to be alive much longer I mean I think God put it in my heart you ain't got long to go boy I'm going to give you one last chance to follow me if you don't follow me this time I'm going to take you out you know I started thinking hey I realized God does not owe me another day of living on this earth I started getting scared. I mean, I was really afraid I was going to die. I wouldn't even get in a car with somebody because I was a, just knew I was going to die right away. And along about this time, folks had a talk with me one night, and it started off going good. And it winds up my mom just breaking down, crying there in front of me, and which was nothing. I, you know, I was so used to that. And then I saw my dad. He's a big, strong man. He just broke down crying from all the stress of it, too. And that really hit me hard to see my big, stout daddy crying for all the damage I had caused in his heart. I knew who I had to go see. I wound up going to see this old high school teacher on a Sunday night about 10 o'clock. Boom, boom, boom. Woke him up. Hey, come outside. I got to talk. So... He did. We sat out in his driveway. He said, are you ready to ask the Lord Jesus to be your Savior? And I said, yes, I am. Yes, I am. So we had that prayer. And you know what? When we finished praying together, I I was like, wow, 
I can't imagine my life without smoking weed. Because every day I would get up thinking, where's my high coming from? You know, every every morning, get high. That was my MOD. Stay high all the way till I go to bed at night. Start up, do the same thing the next day all over again. And so I drove away, and I still thought, Lord, can you really help me quit doing this? Because I had flushed dope down a commode. I had tried to quit several times before. Flushed whole big bags of pot down a commode that cost a lot of money. And then I'd be right back using within a day or two. Just couldn't quit. Could not quit on my own. So anyway, God gave me what I needed for that healing to get me off of that stuff. We moved to Hardensburg like a week later from Louisville. Well, it wasn't long after that. He woke me up one morning. I knew I was supposed to go to college. What? Me? College? You got to be kidding. You know, I graduated... Graduated, literally, dead last in a class of 300 people. Can you believe that? You want me to go to college? Okay, I'll do it. So he gave me what I needed, you know, to get through school. He started restoring my life, and that's what he wants to give to you. You know, you watch these shows like Flip This House, and you see the people go in, and they they tear out the oh walls and the foundation and all that of an old wrecked, decrepit house, and then they build it back again new and and bright and pretty and and better than it ever was before. Well, he's a God of restoration. You know, that's what I hope somebody takes out of here today, that regardless of what's going on in your life, regardless of what's got a hold of you in this life, that God wants to give you restoration and give you healing, and he will. He'll give it to you like he did me. So he got me through college at Western. I never could have believed he would have done it, but he got me through somehow, and he really blessed me. Then he, Anyway, to make a long story short, I wanted to share with you a piece of Scripture. I had so much on my mind this morning. I walked out of the house and left my Bible, left my glasses, all that at home. So, But if you get a chance, read in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5 where it talks about in there that we are at war with Satan, basically. All of us are. He's, he's out in a battle trying to take over our mind by building strongholds into our mind, okay? Strongholds are where we have given over to a sin of some type in our life enough times that the devil's come and planted a flag and said, hey, this is my territory now, Okay which is what he had done. He had built a stronghold in my life with the drugs and drinking and all that. But you know what? He built strongholds into people's lives with gambling. He built strongholds with pornography. He built strongholds with having, wanting to control our spouse with anger, all kinds of strongholds. But you know what it says in here? It says, we don't wage war according to the flesh. You know, our weapons are got spiritual weapons, you know, and they're effective for tearing down strongholds. God will give us what we need to tear down strongholds in our life, to tear, help others tear down the strongholds in their life, and he'll, He makes us overcomers, victors in this life, okay? What I wanted to share in closing is, you know, this we're, this church is starting a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. 
I'm really excited about this because I know, I know this is going to be going to war with Satan's kingdom. And I know God's going to be sending people into us. You know, and they're not going to be people. Some of them are going to look rough, you know, not like us. But they're coming seeking God. They're seeking the kind of healing that he's given us. And God's going to set some people free. And I'm really excited about that. Um, so I wanted to share with you one final thought. You know, a lot of times somebody's got an addicted person in their family or what I call a life-controlling problem. And you know what? Everybody's tried their best talking to that person to see if they could get them to quit, to come to church, all this kind of thing. They don't want to hear it. You know what I have to do as a therapist, as a counselor so much of the time? We have to get to that family member of that person. We've got to get to their husband. We've got to get to their wife. We've got to get to somebody close to them and start working with that person, helping them understand how addiction works, helping them understand what they're doing may be actually making it worse. And oftentimes when that person, when the family member starts getting help for themselves, they get into a small group, get to praying with other people, often that's how the addict, how they'll get through to that addicted person because God answers prayers and there's power in praying together. You know, that's, that's what I wanted to share with you is he's a powerful God. We've got three things going, working for us here. We've got, you know, the promises of God in his scripture. That's a powerful thing. The blood of Jesus and the name, praying in the name of Jesus. You know, we're overcomers, and he's going to set some people free from these addictions, you know. But I just want you to know, maybe you're somebody in here that struggled with something like we talked about this morning with bitterness anger, resentments, all that, you know, you don't have to fight this on your own. You know, get, you may be somebody that loves someone that's got a life-controlling problem like addictions. Please don't try to fight this on your own. You know, please don't do it that way. Come find me. Come find Andrew, Brother Kent, uh, Mike Thomas. Let somebody in on your struggle so that we can pray with you and help you get through this because by ourselves, I just don't think we're very effective fighters very often, especially with resentments and things like this. So I'm going to encourage you. If I haven't met you, I'm sorry. Please come introduce yourself. I would love to know you. But I just want to share with you a little bit of how God set me free in this life. By the way, last thing, I promise you. I know everybody's getting hungry. You know, my mother told me, she said, I prayed for you and prayed for you and prayed for you, and I saw no answers coming i saw you getting worse and worse and worse she said i finally got to a point where i just turned you over to god i just said here god i can't do anything more with him he's yours you know i thought he was mine all these years but he's yours you just do what you have to do this i'm giving up on him you know and she told me when she gave it up and gave it over to god she said you know what said it wasn't long after that that's when you came back to the lord (laughs) (laughs) when she turned it over to God and said, I can't do this on my own, God. He's yours. You deal with him. That's when it happened. That's when she got her spiritual breakthrough. So, brothers and sisters, you don't have to fight these fights alone with somebody in your family with some kind of struggle. Get with some of us. Let us love on you. Let us pray you through it, and God will give you a victory. Amen.
we go out today, I just want to pray over us the scriptures that George shared with us. I love what he said there about these strongholds. If you just bow your heads and close your eyes, this is where we're going to end today. But I want you to consider these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And then in verse 7 he says, Look at what is before your eyes. Just in the quietness of this moment, I'm going to pray over us as we finish our time together today. Lord, would you help us to look at what is right before our eyes? Whatever you have revealed to us as we have walked through our time together today, maybe it was nothing new at all, something that we have been dealing with for years. Seems like our entire lives, that same hurt, that same habit, that same hang-up has has been plaguing us. That has become the stronghold of the devil in our lives. And Lord, we confess this morning that you alone have the power to demolish strongholds. And we ask that you would do that in us. As we seek to be faithful to what you've given us today, Father, to to ask for and to offer forgiveness in the midst of the broken relationships in our lives, not just to pay lip service to this, but to actually do the work. And we know, Father, that our part of the work is so small in comparison with yours because it was your son who went to the cross. It was Christ who paved the way that we might be forgiven and that we might forgive. And it's your power at work in us that will accomplish what is needed. Lord, may you uproot the bitterness. May you remove the anger from us. Replace it with your peace. And may we be faithful to whatever you have given to us to do this day. To go to that person. To do the hard thing knowing that you will always be with us. You will never leave us or forsake us. And you will demonstrate your power in the midst of our weakness.